You're listening to The Gateway Church. For more information, please go online to thegatewaychurch.com. Thank you, Whitney. And musicians, Josh, thank you for that song. Good morning. It's good to be together today. And this day started off just so sideways for me, I I thought I wasn't even going to make it here, and so glory to God. And we're in this uh, series where we're we're teaching through the Apostles' Creed, which of course isn't scripture, but it's a summary of the historic Christian faith. And we're looking to the writings of the Apostle John as the foundation underpinning for the concepts that are uh, boiled down into our confession of faith of the Apostles' Creed, which along with the Nicene Creed is sort of the statement of faith uh, for the Gateway Church. And we're sort of lifting out a concept each week. And this week, I'm, I want to talk to you about an incredibly uncomfortable and unpopular topic. I want to talk to you about judgment, about the judgment of God. Because it says in the creed, whence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. Now, you can go to a gym in this town that will promise you no judgments. And, uh, you know, you can go to the bookstore where I was looking at titles and you can find care for the soul, gentleness for the soul, chicken soup for the soul, but not a single topic about the judgment of the soul. And in spite of the fact that the topic is extremely un popular and makes us all squirm a little bit. Give me a good squirm. Re squirm just a little bit. There you go. Great. Uh, that doesn't change the fact that God indeed does and will judge mankind. And not only that, I want to show you this morning <clears throat> that the very people who have dismissed this vital truth simply have never faced up to the fact that we need a judging God, that we need Judgment Day, very much, and before we're done, you're going to find out that the judgment of God is, in fact, one of the most comforting things you can ever wrap your heart around. I'm also going to show you that the biblical understanding of Judgment Day is much more nuanced than the understanding our culture has of Judgment Day. Four things we're going to learn. First one is you and I must have a judgment day. Jesus says, there is a judge. Verse 48, the one who rejects me does not re- and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I've spoken will judge them on the last day. And what you have in this categorical statement, there is a judge, and on the last day, there will be a judgment day. And right in the middle of this declaration of judgment, Jesus brings out one of the most positive metaphors of who he he is, and then he links it to the wrath of God. Look at verse 46. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. The light is so positive. The judgment is so negative. Why why did he say that? What Jesus is saying by linking these two is clear is that without 
judgment, we end up living in total darkness. There's a connection between light and judgment. And you got to have the one in order to have the other. Two brilliant writers of the last 60 years have helped us understand just how dark our world becomes without a judgment day. The brilliant uh, playwright Arthur Miller, in his play, After the Fall, a character, Quentin, says this. Listen up. For many years, I looked at life like case law of a series of proofs. When you're young, you prove how brave you are or smart. Or then, then what a good lover you are, or a, then a good father. Finally, how wise, powerful, or whatever. But underlying it all, I see now there was a presumption that one moved on as an upward path towards some elevation where, God knows what, I would be justified or even condemned. A verdict, anyway, to know how I was doing. I think now that my disaster really began when I looked up one day and the bench was empty. No judge in sight. And all that I remained, I realized, was the endless argument with oneself. This pointless litigation of existence before an empty bench, which of course is another way of saying despair. He felt free until he looked up and he saw that the judge's bench was empty. Look, everyone lives as if it's better to tell the truth than to tell a lie, to care and nurture for people other than destroy them, to seek peace instead of war, to give rather than receive. We believe these kinds of choices matter. But if the bench is empty, friends, then who says that any choice, peace, war, life, death, is any better than the other? Whether we're loving or whether we're cruel, in the end, it would make no difference at all. Therefore, you'd be free to do whatever, whenever, however, with whatever, whomever, whatever, whenever you want. And history is littered with the sad examples of how human nature will pervert that complete freedom into an abomination of evil. You remember your freshman year of college? Some people pass the test of freedom, some people fail the test of freedom. Am I right? Yeah. And all of that is the darkness. So there must be a judgment day, or we have no meaning as individuals or as a society. Another brilliant author, Mirsav Wolf, if you... I uh, haven't read his brilliant book from a decade ago, Exclusion and Embrace. Please pick it up and read it. He's a modern-day Lewis, um, and he's, it, in one portion of the book, he's advocating about um, uh, 
practicing nonviolence as a way of bringing social uh, renewal. And he said, but he says in the book, my thesis that the practice of nonviolence requires a belief in divine vengeance will be unpopular with many in the West, but it takes the quiet of a suburban home for the birth of the thesis that human nonviolence results from the belief in God's refusal to judge. In a sun-scorched land soaked in the blood of the innocent, it will invariably die with other pleasant captives of the liberal mind. If God were not angry at injustice and deception and did not make a final end to human violence, that God would not be worthy of worship. The only means of prohibiting all recourse to violence by ourselves is to insist that violence is legitimate only when it comes from God. Now, I want you to hang on for the whole thing before you rush to judgment of what I'm trying to tell you today. Wolf is telling us that it's the lack of a belief in a God of vengeance that secretly nourishes violence between humans. Because our human nature is to make perpetrators of violence pay for their crimes with a crime. You gouge out one of my eyes, I'm going to gouge out both of yours. What's that based upon? Left to our own human devices, we are pulled inexorably into an endless cycle of vengeance nurtured and justified by the memory of every horrible wrong we have ever suffered or witnessed. But that all changes when God himself sits as the final judgment, in the final judgment seat, and as Wolf says, we believe that he will judge. And if I don't believe that there is a God who will eventually put all things right, I'm going to always be tempted and I always will pick up the sword and be sucked into the endless whirlpool of retaliation and revenge. <clears throat> but when I believe that the God of the universe will right all wrongs one day, he will met out justice without exception I find only in that the power to refrain, to restrain, to swallow my pride, and to live at peace. So here's the deal. There is a judge, and it's not you or me. And look, I, I know, you know, the, the collective wisdom of our population popular culture thinks the idea of a judgment day or a judging God is ludicrous. Now we all have to say, we all have to choose our own right and wrong. Let me tell you something. Most people with that mindset either have been thinking, like Quentin in the play, then one day I looked up and that's where all my disaster began, or like Wolfsbett says they've spent their lives in absolute comfort in the quiet of a suburban home and have never been wrong. Because if you've been wronged, you want justice. 
But if you try to administer it yourself, it sets off that endless cycle of bitterness and rage and retaliation because in the end you realize you're really defenseless and have nothing to stand on other than your own hatred and rage. So there must be a judge and a judgment day, otherwise all is darkness. Okay, there must be a judgment day first. Second, there's no way we can survive a judgment day. Well, thank you, Tom. I'm glad I got up on this beautiful Sunday morning when it's absolutely perfect outside to come here and listen to this. I know, it's, it's a paradox. If there is a judgment day, there is no hope. Or if there is no judgment day, there is no hope. And if there is a judgment day, there is no hope. Here's the deal. You won't have to have your life. Rather, you, you won't have your life transformed by Jesus Christ until you heft the weight of these two truths. There's going to be a judgment day, and we won't survive it. Here's what I mean. Jesus hints at the way the judgment will be carried out in the last day. God's going to use two principles to judge all of mankind, and this gives us insight into how he's going to pronounce that judgment. The judgment of God focuses on the heart, and the judgment of God focuses on the knowledge of the truth. Now, not knowledge like passing a test, knowledge of have you done anything with what you have learned. Listen to the word of God. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. Verse 37, now 42 and 43. Nevertheless, many, even the authorities, believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Then Jesus issues a clear warning about God's judgment upon those who reject him. And Jesus cried out, saying, Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. Two things are going on here. First, we have religious leaders who are externally really pretty good people. You know, they obeyed the golden rule. They... Ten Commandments, they pray, they go to church, they pay their tithes, they're upstanding citizens, they believe in God, yada, yada, yada. But when Jesus comes along and tells them that they are sinners who are in need of the grace of God, out comes the pride and they want to kill the messenger. For this group, the outwardly religious who deny Christ in their hearts, like it says in 1 Samuel, the Lord sees not as a man sees, Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And the second group, now, in verses 42 and 43, these other kinds of leaders who recognize Jesus as the Son of God, but were in such need of the praise and approval of men that they fold up under the pressure. I mean, who hasn't ever felt the intoxicating power of approval, of human praise? Jesus says, either way, reject Jesus as false or reject Jesus out of fear. Either way, judgment's going to come. 
What evidence does God consider in rendering his judgment? Exhibit A, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, your heart. If your heart is self-centered, self-saving, self-righteous, self-absorbed, you're going to live one way. But if your heart is open to God and humble in need of his grace and mercy, you're going to live another way. In other words, God looks at what we do and why we do or don't do certain things. He goes after the why. And if we were in a human court of law counselor, we'd be talking about motive. God knows our motives. He knows why we do what we do. He knows when we, we do a, some good things in order to try to earn his approval and therefore trying to control him, to sort of earn favor, earn our salvation, talked about that last week, to feel superior to other people. Or he knows when we just say, I'm good, and we ignore the needs of people around us. Both are evidences of the kinds of heart that we might have. And remember, you can fool people. You can even fool yourself. We cannot fool God. In God's court of law, there's no faults testimony. He knows the score. He knows the facts intimately, better than DNA, better than fingerprints, better than voice print. I mean, he's got the incriminating evidence on all of us. And there will be the evidence upon which we will be judged. Now, the other criterion for judgment is not just our heart, but the knowledge of the truth that we have. Listen again. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. It's the only way to understand this statement when he says, the one who rejects has a judge. And in verse 47, he's saying, and I won't be the judge. What do you mean I won't be the judge on the last day? The word of it spoken to you will be the judge on the last day. He's saying just that. The word you heard will be the judge. And this is very, very important to remember for any of this to make sense. Right here, along with Paul in Romans chapter 2, saying that we'll only be judged based on what truth you've been given. Maybe all you have is the faintest flicker in your conscience. Everyone knows, every human being knows some piece of God's truth, even those who haven't heard. I mean, listen, 
Cannibals in the deepest, darkest recesses of the most remote jungles on the planet. Cannibals know it's wrong to eat people. Why? Because they don't want to be eaten. Right? Common grace. Universal re re revealed kind of truth that's part of being a human being. And here's what Jesus is saying. You're only going to be judged on this criteria. Exhibit B, your knowledge. Have, what have you done with what you know to do? When he says the word will rise up and judge you on the final day, this personification of the word is very simple. Here we go. Whatever truth you've known, even if it's just a shred, the golden rule, whatever, your conscience, that truth, truth, that truth will rise up on that day, look you in the eye, and said you knew it, but you didn't do it. Francis Schaeffer used to say that there's a tape recorder hung around all of our necks that automatically turns on every time we say, you should, or you oughta, or you better, or hey, that guy didn't. Every time you make an accusation towards somebody else, it automatically records. That's just another way of saying everyone has some sense of right and wrong. Everyone has some measure of the truth. And on the final day, God will say, look, <clears throat> I'm not going to judge you on the gospel if you've never heard it, the Ten Commandments, if you had never heard them. I'm going to let the word you did hear, the word you knew, judge you. Did you do, did you obey the truth you knew? And then he's going to play back the tape, and nothing is off the record. That's the only possible way that's both thorough and fair. So he will judge on the basis of the heart and the basis of the known truth. You know what that means? That means there's no hope for you or me. Every time, I mean, think about it. Every time you've gone to church, every sermon, every you know, thing you've read, been heaping up more and more truth, and on that day it'll rise up and ask, did you do what you knew? People are saying, well, it gives me a good reason to never come back to church again. <laughs> Thank you very much. I'm out. Because <clears throat> we don't want to hear it. Because then we're going to have to face it. And that, friends, is terrifying. Just how are we going to stand on the day of judgment? If there's a judgment day, what hope is there for me or anyone? And if there's not a judgment day. What hope is there for any of us? The hope, friends, the hope is in Jesus Christ who shows us there's a third way. Verse 41, <clears throat> Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. All right, we must have a judgment day. We don't stand a chance on that judgment day. The third 
in Jesus Christ, we've already had our judgment day. Friends, you're about to hear the best news you're ever going to hear in your entire journey. In Jesus Christ, we can't get away from the judgment day, so the only possible way that we're going to be able to handle judgment day, this frightening moral reality, is if judgment day has already happened. Jesus says, in me, you've already faced your judgment day. In me, you've already faced your judgment day. Where does it say that? In verse 44, he cries out, and Jesus cried out and said, whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. He's saying, judgment is coming, and I am the only way out. Hang on, you'll see where these conclusions come from. I'm the only way you will see the Father. I'm the only representative you're ever going to get of the Father. If you reject me, you are rejecting the Father. I am the only way through this judgment. He makes it clear he's not the judge during his earthly ministry. If anyone hears my word and does not keep them, I do not judge him. I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. But whoa, 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 wait a minute. It doesn't say back in John chapter 5 that he had come to judge the world. The answer, friends, is found in the tense. There's a payoff for ninth grade you know, English and remembering our grammar. There's a place for word nerds. Yeah. And the answer's in the tense. The first time he came was to do what? Not to judge. The second time he comes, he will judge. And the creed makes it perfectly clear. Whence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. Well, how come he didn't do that in the first place? Because what he did in the first place is the stuff that Isaiah was saying he was looking at and beheld his glory and saw. And what did Isaiah see? He was despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. He came the first time, not to judge, but to be judged. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting, Isaiah wrote in 50 verse 6. The judge in Jesus Christ has left the bench climb down to stand before the judge, the place where the accused stand in the orange jumpsuit, the place the guilty guy in handcuffs and shackles stand, the defendant, the guilty parf, he stands. And he took his own judgment for us on him. He took it upon himself. He took his own judgment for our sins upon himself. And if you place your faith in him your judgment is now in the past. The only possible way you can face judgment and stand through that judgment 
is if that judgment has already happened to someone else. He was punished for us, for you, for me. He took the full brunt of everything that we deserve, everything on the tape recorder. We are guilty, but he is condemned. So your verdict is going to come back, not guilty. Now, what does that mean? It means, first of all, we must have a judgment. We can't stand. We don't have a chance. We can't survive that judgment. In Christ, we've already had a judgment. And here we go. In Christ, we can live with faith and hope between two judgments. What's amazing is that there is a judgment both in the past and a coming judgment day in the future. And here's the beauty of all of this. If you believe that we've had our judgment in Christ, that he took the punishment so we could be acquitted, then we can take the gloves off about our sin and our identity. Because Jesus was judged for you and me, he was crucified for you and me, and we are loved beyond what we could ever dream or imagine. We see that we were more evil than we ever admitted, that the cost was more horrific than we imagined, and his love for us is beyond our wildest dreams. Therefore, I can be honestly, finally, about who I am about my sin, and I can drop the defensiveness about both of them because it can no longer be used against me in God's court of law. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. This gives us the capacity to be brutally honest about our sin and at the same time completely comfortable with who you know you are in God's and each other's eyes. Poised, confident, bold. Why? Because there is a judgment behind us and at the same time be someone who says my judgment is behind me and I deserve to be punished so I don't feel superior to anybody. And we can be at peace, submitted, obedient, accountable. Why? Because there is a judgment behind us and because we know that whence he shall come in the future to judge the living and the dead, we can call each other out when we're wrong. We can oppose injustice in this world, but never out of vindictiveness. Not to seek revenge. We have the capacity, because we've been forgiven for so much, to forgive each other, including people we don't love 
and the harder group, those that we don't like. That look different, that vote different, that think different. This is either a better way to live or it's all a horrendous joke. Because we, it is a better way to live because we know we don't have the right to judge anybody. We don't have the knowledge to judge anybody. Because there is a judge, and it's not you and me. We can live with integrity and boldly go after injustice. Because you know, in the end, God is going to win. He will settle it all. How can you do so humbly with forgiveness without ever feeling the need to have to prove yourself? Because there's both a judging God the Father and his only Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who has taken his judgment, our judgment. And there and only there can we find the stuff to live with hope and humility. Brings me, as you were all thinking about this morning, the Heidelberg Confession. How many of you were confirmed in the church through the confession? Well, it's a, it's a process of discipling. It asks a bunch of questions. Question 52 of the Heidelberg Catechism. How does Christ's return to judge the living and dead comfort you? Great question. Answer. In all my affliction and persecution, I may await with head held high the very judge from heaven who has already submitted himself to the judgment of God for me and has removed all the curse from me. Now that's really great news. If you reject this truth, then I'm sorry. You really have no hope because something's going to judge you. The stock market's going to judge you. Your waistline's going to judge you. The mirror's going to judge you. Your marital status is going to judge you. Your resume's going to judge you. Your bank account's going to judge you. Social media, <laughs> that'll certainly judge you. People around you are going to judge you. The only judged, the only judge who was judged for you is Jesus Christ. Accept him as the judged judge of your life. Let's pray. This has been another episode of the Gateway Church Podcast. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.